Welcome to the Health and Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Precious and I'm your host. Our goal is to have insightful conversations, learn from each other and grow together. Let's do this. On this segment, I've had the privilege of talking to Betu, who has a total of 12 siblings. Betu talks about how it was growing up on a station in Onslow and his life experiences. Enjoy. Well, back in those days, me personally, I felt, you know, we have to learn quick. When I say that, I'm talking about helping our dad out with uh, bringing us up and that. So we all, all of us, all the kids had to learn how to, uh, you know, do our own washing and help learn how to cook, even the basic cooking frying or something like that. So growing up, we learned a lot of things which uh, normal kids nowadays wouldn't learn until they're older, especially the ones that got two parents on that. And do you think it was a benefit, if you look at it as compared to this generation, if you look at it, what are the positives from having to learn so much at, the, at, the, at, the, at a very young age? Well, looking at today's society and back then, I felt, we had an advantage. We learnt. We were taught how to do things on other people and that sort of thing. We were taught how to respect people, respect our elders and that. We had a lot of family members around us, plus other Aboriginal people around us and who extended families who helped my father along and that. But we were taught to, how to respect people and that. So it was more like a, a, a child, like how they say a child is raised by a village, basically. Sort of. We were taught things, and not only from our dad, but from our extended family and that sort of thing. So the right from wrongs and that sort of thing, and all that sort of stuff. You know, like I, when I first said, we were taught how to, we learned very early how to cook, how to do things ourselves, and that to be take take responsibility for things and that sort of thing and that we didn't sleep around and that the people when they worked on stations they were from sundown to sun up so when they got up we were up too sort of thing so tell me you mentioned about having grown up on a station how did the station look like and what was what is it all about being in a station can you explain a little bit around that we enjoyed going out you know while we were on the muster and camps with while the men folks were out doing mustering and that and we'd go with our auntie Eileen James out into the bush looking for wild honey and that and body grubs and all this and that and as we grew older just before we finished school Mitchell and myself and a couple of other family members we were allowed to go out mustering with the with the men and that. With school with schooling did you attend school in Onslow and with the station was the school also stationed at the station? No, no, no. The school was based in Onslow. So back in those days, like mm. it is today, school was compulsory. Okay. Uh, but we were placed into Ostel. And looking back now, looking back then and to now, I, I think to myself and think what a privilege it was to be able to go to school. Because we went through, we went to primary school, then we went to high school. We were high school up in Port Edelin. I look around today and see the how many kids are not at school yes. and not that opportunity to get an education and that yes. and things like that. Yes, yeah, so, you know we back in those days the Aboriginal people were told what to do by the native welfare and that you know you learn that too as you go along and 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 some of the things they did and that were wrong and that like battle the stolen generation and that 
Yes. We, were, we didn't get taken away in that. Oh, yes. So, you know, but we were still under the Native Welfare Department, so they said where we go, you know, we have to go to school, what we did and that. wanted papers and sign that, come out and get the old man to sign papers and, you know, it was more or less signed and that's it. Didn't tell them what it was about or anything. You talked about being grateful for having to have attended school. Can you tell me a little bit about that, the the advantages and also the disadvantages, especially for the younger generation at this a time who are there not attending school? Well, the, we went to the Julia Mai Austell in Onslow. The advantage we had was the ed- education. We, had, uh, we went to school, we got three meals a day. Right. We yep. had education. We went into my schooling while I uh, was in uh, third year. Myself and my twin brother Mitchell and a few other Aboriginal Aboriginal uh, students who were we were boarding at Magonia Hostel in Port Ellen was an Aboriginal hostel or high yep. school. We were transferred over to the brand new Edelin High School hostel, and that was a bit hard for me to take. In the Edelin High School hostel, it was going to be a mixed hostel, a mixed race sort of thing, white fellas, black. I didn't cotton to that idea because I, I had spent about two years in the Magunya hostel with other Aboriginal kids from around the Pilbara and that sort of thing. But then go, going into a new hostel with all these white fellas and that, uh, I didn't take too well at first. And how do you, how did it impact you both positively and negatively being in that environment that you were not so keen to be in? Well, I started to play up. I played up enough to be where I ended up getting uh, kicked out of the hostel. Okay. And and how did then schooling, how did you then proceed with schooling now that you had act up um, and then you, you were suspended from there? I, I was expelled from the hostel. Mm. Been expelled from the hostel they didn't give me the opportunity to go back to Magunya uh, and that because because it was a high school hostel. So then they they expelled me. They didn't want me back at the high school. Okay, okay. And then so, what happened after? How did you then proceed with schooling now, considering that was the situation at the time? Well, then I was sent back to Onslow and then I sort of missed the permission from my father. Yes. Um, if I could finish my third year off by going to coming down to Carnarvon, so I was placed into the Church of Christ the mission. Okay, so so you then moved from Onslow and then went to Carnarvon. Yeah, to the uh, Church of Christ here and went to the high school here in Carnarvon, and where I finished. I was only there for two terms in the mission anyhow. Okay, all right. Oh, so then when you finished school, um, then what happened, Nick? Well, when I first left school, I went back to Onslow. And back in them days, I suppose today too, it was a bit uh, daunting. I was a bit afraid of what, what, what do I do now? And, uh, you know, you, you finish school right on your own sort of thing. Yes, and what age, at what age did you finish school in Carnarvon? At what, how old were you? Well, I was about 16. You're okay, yeah. So pretty young. And so my Mitchell and my twin brother ended up coming they ended up sending him down to the mission too. So he did uh, one term at the mission, I think it was. He didn't spend too long here. But while we were at the mission we were uh, he ended up getting a job down in Jordan. So he started an apprenticeship down in Jordan or a job down in Jordan. Yes. So after I finished school, uh, I went back to Onslow, then came back to Carnarvon again. Mm. And then uh, the, I 
who third was with it, the employment agency at the time or someone found a job for me down in in, uh, in Gerald. Okay, yes. As a print, they said it was apprentice car, uh, apprentice uh, boat builder, but when I got down there, it was for as apprentice carpenter. Okay. And how did you go with that one? Was that something that you're looking forward to do or you just got in because it was something that had come up? That's it. I, I didn't apply for apprentice uh, to be a apprentice carpenter or anything. It was something training that that came up and I thought something has came up, so I thought, oh, well, I'll give it a go. Yes. And I lasted, uh, it was a four-year apprenticeship, four-year course. Mm-hmm. I lasted two years. And the, re- yes. the reason being was just as I had finished school, everything was in feet and inches. Okay, yes. So as soon as I started my apprenticeship and that, they had switched over to metrics, mm-hmm. which I didn't know nothing about. So, and being a, you know, a carpenter and that, and you, because you're measuring things, you're adding things up and all this. Yes. But it, it all had to be done in metrics, so all that was very confusing. Oh, so that was uh, you. It's uh, it was an added challenge for you, then having to learn something new into something that you got in and didn't have expectations expectations of staying in there. Well, that's right. But being a young bloke, if if that opportunity came up again, you know, and like me knowing a lot more and that, yeah, the first thing I would I'd say to young fellas, don't give up. Don't give up. Yeah, because I was. I was offered the opportunity to go to uh, night school mm. around regarding around my learning metrics and that, but because I was a young bloke and was just starting to get out and starting to enjoy life being a young teenager. Yes. And then when I was old enough by 18 to start drinking and that, so I thought this is a lie. Oh, so you started being out and, and how do you think that having started drinking, how do you think it impacted on your life? Well, not good. In what way? Can you describe um, what happened during that period? Well, drinking uh, started off being good, you know, you're enjoying yourself, so you're right with the mob and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But after a while, it catches up with you. And I've had multiple stays in hospital, short stays in hospital, drinking and oh. that. Yeah. And back in the days, then, them days, where you couldn't walk down the street wherever you were. If you wasn't walking straight, you was carrying grog or something and drinking, street drinking, you'd get picked up and thrown in jail for the night. Wow. So there wasn't like a um, an alcohol tester then? It was like they would just watch how you're walking and make a prediction from there? No, yes. What I'm saying is back then, if you were drunk, it was a crime. Oh, and how would they test? Did you say they would just look at how you're walking? That's right. No breathalyzer? <laughs> no, no, no. That, you know, most of the time I was drunk and sometimes I, were, I was a little bit tipsy in that. Yeah. But you have a look at today's society now. No one gets picked up for being drunk. No, yeah. You get picked up and taken home and you didn't get taken home. You were taken to the cell to and the locked, cell. locked up for the night. And, and how how would it have made you feel having and realising that you were in the cell overnight? Well, it was frightening. Especially when I was drunk. You wake up in the morning and you wonder, the first thing you see are bars. And then, because about nine o'clock in the morning before court, they'd come around and do your fingerprints and that. Yeah. 
And so you are sitting there waiting for some, one of the police officers to come around to do your fingerprints so you can ask them what you're in there for. Okay, yeah. So, you know, this is drinking too much alcohol. I didn't know, half the time I didn't even know I was in there. And woke up in the morning, then I was wondering what the hell I did. Oh, no. What did I do? You know, not mm. knowing why I was in there. And it was a sigh of relief when I asked the sergeant to decide what I'm in there for. And they'll just say, same old thing, Bertrand. Yeah. Oh, so it looks like um, you'd you'd get to a point where, I wouldn't call it blackout, but not remembering some of the things that happened. Oh, there lots of time. When, when people drink and they drink to get drunk, you can't, you cannot tell me that people remember what they do, what they've done the night before. Sure. Yeah, you're right. People who, who drinks too much don't know what they've done the night before. And that, that is the sad thing about it because you vex your brains and that, you know, and, and and then me waking up. But the sad thing is I used to wake up and I wasn't the only Aboriginal people there. When I think back to when I used to get locked up mm. and only on the weekend, there used to be about 10 or 8 other people in there. Yes. The, and it was mainly Aboriginal people. And do you and think it's because that that's the culture of where people were drinking and... No, I think it's... You have a look at today. As I said, you can walk around. I've observed people walking around. They're staggering and that. Mm. They sometimes they do get picked up or family members ring the police and they do get picked up by the police and taken to another family member's place if they run in the muck at one other place. Yeah. Back in them days, they didn't take you to another family member's place. They didn't take you to drop you off home. They took you and locked you up. That's, you can tell the difference of how the policing was then or people, you know, and now. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's not a criminal offence now to be drunk. Yes, whereas then it was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they drunk and disorderly, but how can you be drunk and disorderly when there was one, one time I got picked up, I was walking out and by myself, walking along, I was, I was here, this yes. Yeah, I was walking along home. Yes. And, you know, and a little bit unsteady on my feet. I heard a car pull up behind. I looked around and I saw it was the van, police van, and they tapped me on the shoulder, you know, grabbed my arms and they said, come on. And I said, well, I just tried to say, look, I'm on my way home now. You know, I knew where I was. I knew where I was going. Yeah. But they didn't give me that chance. You know, they, they just said, you're coming with us, man. And, and I was back at the station and, you know, and that's what they used to do to a lot of, a lot of Aboriginal people. Oh, so what, why, at what point did you end up saying this is enough? Because you spent the night in the cells, then wake up, then... Um, told that you're here for the same thing, Beto. At what point did you say, you know what, I need to stop? What What was the rock bottom, if I can say, that that alerted you to say, no, I need to change my life? Well, as I said before, I through my drinking, I ended up in hospital a few times, a lot of times, really. Yeah. And more or less to dry out and that sort of thing. I'd have these shakes, the tadas, people used to call it. Mm. I was a lot and that and the only thing which could fix it well in my head was I'd go and have another beer but oh. by the time I had two three more beers I'd be drunk again so but that went on for years so I didn't give up straight away there were there were a few times along the way where I stopped drinking for a couple of for a month or so but not too long then I because of peer pressure there were friends there were boredom lots of times when I was drinking I didn't work I didn't have a job. Yes. 
and that, so I got back on the grog again. Yeah, so back up in the, sorry, yeah. back up in the 70s, because I, I ended up in Port Edelin working up in Port Edelin on the Shy Council. Back in the 70s up in Port Edelin, Port Edelin was known as a very, oh, because it was a mining town, there was a lot of drinking there. Oh, yep. Yeah, there's still a lot of drinking down there, but there mm. was a lot there. Even in Carnarvon, there was a lot of drinking and that. The pubs used to open at 9 o'clock in the morning and, you know, go to 12. Some of them used to go to 12 o'clock at night. You know? So I just kept drinking, drinking. But then, as life as it, you know, people, we do go along in life and that, and then things happen and that. Yeah. Most of those times I was drinking, I was... Uh, single i didn't have a partner or anything you know i had a uh, few friends and that yes but i finally met someone so it was only a short relationship because she passed away yep. but yeah i went down to perth and i was down there with my nephew staying with him and that and they didn't drink have any alcohol in place so that's when i went and had some training and what training did you start doing i went i i was unemployed and i thought this training came up and my nephew said, uh, you know, I'm going to do this training. And I said, well, I might come along with you. So it was a 12-month course and as an Aboriginal health worker. Oh, great. So once you moved to... and where I was staying with my nephew in Perth. Oh, in Perth. And yeah. that's how you started the 12 months? This was after I lost, lost my partner. Okay, okay. Oh. And after that, and then trained as an Aboriginal health worker. <laughs> so being an health worker gave me more insights into the damage alcohol does, that smoking and all that, and, and all the health issues around which affects Aboriginal people, you know, and that. Yes. But in saying that, I was still drinking a little bit, you know? Yes. But I'd slowed down uh, uh, a, a lot, but not that much. And, yeah, well done. I'll say well done for you to end up having to get to a point because when you're drinking and things like that, it, it's not easy to... Just quickly stop. There's always times when you start that process again and you, you know, it's not a once off. So you, you sometimes you go back to that, then you stop. So what are the things that you would say um, helped you to get to this with the support that you got to get you to a stage where you're like, I think now I can stop drinking. There should have been something that was well, also aiding yeah, to that. Well, I didn't go to alcohol or drugs or anything like that for me to stop drinking because I was I, I knew the damage alcohol was doing to my body and that. Yes. And with me drinking and that, but it's, what happened was I I I used to every time I used to knock off work, that I used to still grab about a four pack, you know, four cans and that from the pub on my way home. So this one time I bought six. I had one can in the pub. Yes. And this was on a Monday. This is after a long, very hard weekend of drinking. Mm. And I went home. I opened another can. Yes. And all of a sudden I needed to go to the toilet to vomit. Oh, no. So I threw that up, vomited that up. So I went back in and I opened another can. I only drank half of that can and now I had to rush back to the toilet. So that was the time then. That was the last time I ever drank. Because I thought straight away there and then, my body is telling me. It's not that. working. Not going to take anymore. Oh, well done on, on and that one. And that's what I like, probably like to see anyone and any everyone and anyone who drinks and that. Look for the warning signs, you know. Always tell you that, give you warning signs that, you know, I can't take anymore. And so I did. I, I thought 
I left the cans in the fridge and and they stayed in there for about two or three weeks, those cans, yes. until they gave it to someone. Okay. And did having family members that are also not drinking around you, did that help as well? No, no. There were a lot of family members and friends who were still drinking and I still had a lot of friends. Oh, okay. So, so, but one thing that it did help me was I had my own accommodation. Yeah, so you had your own space fridge. Yes, so no grog came in. I just told everyone I'm not drinking no more, so no one brought any grog around. At first, I still used to walk back into the pub. I'd order a coat and then sit down because I still had all my mates were still in there. So I kept going back in there. I was still smoking, but I kept mm. going back in there and sitting down having a coat. They'd ask me, go on, Brady, have a beer, have a beer. No, no. So, but in the end, then, after that, I stopped going to the pub. Because my mates were asking me to have a drink or someone would ask me to buy them a drink. It was because you, when you, after you, you've been off the grog for that long, the smell and, and the smell of the atmosphere in the pub just doesn't seem right for you. Yes, yes. Oh, you know, I, I used to still pop my head in and say, G'day, and they buy a medicine, I'll be out of there. And, and how did people receive that? Because sometimes when you've got friends and, the, and you they'll be expecting you to stay longer, what would people around you say? How did they receive that? Uh, I think my, my friends and rallies and that were quite uh, quite happy with it. They, they were quite, uh, I felt they were quite, you know, they respected my wishes and that. And oh, great. They supported me and what I was doing because they could sit. They knew what I went through and that being, you know, especially people around my age and that, my friends and that, been going go to jail, getting locked up, going to hospital to spend a couple of days in hospital cause of, because of my alcohol and that. You know, they supported me. They probably, like a few of my friends probably missed me having a drink and that, you know, but I, I always saw them downtown and had a good yarn with them still in here. And you talked about um, your training as the health officer, Aboriginal health officer that you did for 12 health, months? Health worker, yeah. A health worker. And how was that? How was the process into then getting into work after training and everything? Well, my first job was over in Kalgoorlie. Mm-hmm. I went over there because I was very lucky because the college where I went and did my training, they asked me to go back the next year to help them out with the next lot of students. And I, it was, it was, uh, I was so lucky that when I went back there, then the AMS in Kalgoorlie rang up to the college and asked if they had an health worker who, who wanted to do relieving work over there. And it just so happened I was there. So they asked me, Virtual, do you want to go over to Kalgoorlie? And I'd never been to Kalgoorlie. So, you know, and given that I was still having a few beers then back then, but I went over to Kalgoorlie and that to work as a male Aboriginal health worker. So, you know, I learned a lot over there in Kalgoorlie. Oh, great. Because I was working with different people, different Aboriginal people. And, you know, like growing up in Onslow, you're familiar with your culture up that way and that protocol. But then you go to Kalgoorlie and completely different altogether. And what did this career do for you? What is it that it did for you that when you look back, you feel like this was a good thing for me? Well, you have a look at it now. I'm sitting here talking to you now. I'm in my own place. Yes. Awesome. Well done. Back then when I was drinking, I had no money. I used to wait for, like a lot of people, wait for payday. You know, and, and back then I was smoking too. So, and I'd be looking around for butts and that. And cigarettes don't come cheap either. <laughs> no, well, you know, back then I thought it was dear, but it's much dearer now. And, you know, I've got things which I've never thought I would ever have, you know, mm. that I'd own myself sort of thing, like an house, like a, I 
didn't even have a driver's license because I, one, I didn't know how to drive. Another thing is I didn't, I wouldn't have trusted myself anyhow getting the license because I would have lost it or killed someone or myself. So with giving up the grog, I could see the benefits that's come my way, like with still having my job. Yes. Having my own property, house and everything like that. Like that. And how was it having, because Kalgoorlie looked like it, it opened some doors for you. And how was it leaving Kalgoorlie to, to, to move to another place? Well, I came back to Carnarvon because Carnarvon sort of, as I told you before, my old man was from Northampton. So I find Carnarvon as the halfway house to between Northampton and Onslow. So regarding around going to family gatherings, especially funerals and that. Yeah. While I was over in Kalgoorlie, the only thing that I didn't like about living over in Kalgoorlie was mm. uh, I, I missed a lot of funerals because of the... And, and back then, I didn't have a driver's licence. Mm. So I came up to Carnarvon once from Kalgoorlie to go to a funeral. Yes. And I had to get the train from Kalgoorlie mm. to and sort of and get a lift from someone from Perth and that. So, yeah. so living in Carnarvon is a great advantage because I can go either way, you know, to Northampton, all those sort of things. Yes, and now that you're, you'll be closer to family as well, it's not as yeah. far from when you're in Kalgoorlie. Well, and also staying in Kalgoorlie, I don't know, do you know much about Kalgoorlie? No, not much. Well, back there, back in them days, and I think they still got a few now, but just about, not just about, but Kalgoorlie back then had a hell of a lot of pubs. On one main street, you have about three or four pubs. Wow. And that, some of the pubs were next door to each other. So can you imagine, and that had a couple of nightclubs too at that. Yes, and you're trying to, to, to stay away from that, yeah. And the pubs were opening at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so yeah. I don't think I would have had any chance of giving up the grog in Kalgoorlie. True, true. So that was a definitely a great decision to, to, to move back home. She can have Yeah. There was a job opportunity that came up here. One of one of the health workers from here rang me up and said, you know, there's a job coming up for male health work up here, so I applied for it. And yeah. yeah lucky I got it. Oh wow. Wow. Betcha your story is, is amazing. Just listening to you and how you went through health issues and also get to a point where you realize that um, the grog is not working for you and like met the challenges but went past the challenges is amazing. It's yeah, yeah, I truly applaud you for that, getting to a place Property, where you're working. One of the, one of the issues though, regarding around health, you know, with the grog and that, that I've never typed or, or, or wouldn't say never, I had one go at it. That was going, I had one try of that and I thought it was going to kill me. So I yeah. never ever typed that again. Very heavy smoker, man. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when I spoke about me picking up butts and that, I used to go and pick up butts. That's how bad it was. I used to. When I used to open my eyes, first thing I did was reach for a can or smoke. The way I gave, I needed a bit of help when I, because after I gave up the grog, I was still smoking heavily. You know, I'd pack it a day. Mm. That's 30 cigarettes a day. Wow, that, yeah, that's a lot. And trouble is, it started to become an health issue for me because I'd wake up middle of the night coughing, coughing. And so I thought, no, this is not right. So yeah. I went the doctors at the AMS because I knew I couldn't do it by myself. Yes. And I said, look, I need some help to, I, I want to give up smoking. So what they, what the doctor did, 
he uh, uh, prescribed me some tablets. It was yes. a 12-day course, I think it was. So I started the tab on the tablets after, and I could still smoke while I was taking the tablets. The tablets were there to take away the craving and that. After the third day I got up, I grabbed the, grabbed the smoke, put it in my mouth. I walked around the, not in this house where I was staying, walked around there. The flat I was in, then I walked back in. No, it was in this house now where I was staying. I walked back in and out to the laundry and put the smoke in the cupboard out in the laundry. And that was the last time I ever smoked. You know, when people ask me, you know, I can't give up smoking, I can't give up drinking, and I, I usually tell them there's no such word as can't. And there, there's there's a lot of help out there. Like, I, as I said, I, I had to get help to, yeah. to help me get off smoking because I don't think I would have done it myself. And that's so uh, not all medication works for everyone to the different medications and tribes with those yeah. and probably the last, the one thing I'd like to get out to people is uh, you know what you do when you're in your younger days and that it doesn't leave you whatever you do yes. it can come back to haunt you like with my drinking day and just because I've been off the grog for about 20 odd years doesn't mean to say it hasn't affected me in any way about two Three years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, pancreatitis. Oh, sorry to hear that. Mm. It's not cancerous or anything, but I've got pancreatitis. Because, Mm. and even the doctor was surprised when he asked me, uh, do you drink? And I said about 20-odd years ago. And and so I tell people that, you know, whatever you do in your younger life, you know, like drinking, smoking and that, can come back. it can come back to haunt you. It can come back to haunt you, you know. Yeah. And the best thing is... Don't do it in the first place. Wow. Wow, Becho, your story is it's amazing. And thank you for um, taking time to share and to teach the younger generation because those are the successes so that they also know someone who's gone through it, someone who's managed to, because sometimes it's easier for just someone to who hasn't experienced it to just say it, but because you walked the path, you experienced it, and you're now sharing your story. Is amazing. And and one thing that you know, I'd like to tell young people is, you know, when we all grow up, yourself included, and every other young people, yeah, we always dreams on what we want to do mm. when we get older. And that my message to young people is: follow your dream. Yes. You yeah. know, that's all you need to do: follow your dreams. And there's a lot of support out there to help you. Yeah.